Good morning, church. My name is Hunter Long, and I serve on staff here as the student pastor, and it is a tremendous honor and privilege to be before you all this morning, opening the Word of God together and studying it together as Christ's body. If you would, go ahead and open your Bibles to Psalm chapter 1, Psalms chapter 1, and I will begin reading in verse 1, Psalm chapter 1, verse 1. And because this is the Word of God and you are the people of God on the Lord's day, would you please stand in honor of reading God's word. The psalmist writes as he is carried along by the Spirit of God. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by the streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous." but the way of the wicked will perish. Church family, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. What does it mean to be blessed? Quite possibly, the most frequently used word in the Christian's vocabulary is blessed. We say things like, have a blessed day. We are blessed to be a blessing. God bless you. And the ever so affectionate Southern saying, bless your heart. (laughs) Sometimes we might even characterize ourselves as blessed people. We'll use that as a hashtag in our social media posts. We're blessed. Stay blessed. All these things. And ironically, it is even used commonly among unbelievers to describe themselves as blessed. It was seen that some people think of blessed, and I certainly did for a long period of time, as a spiritual term for good fortune. Like when we receive something good, the desired outcome has come to pass, or we receive exceptional comfort, we proclaim we are blessed. We are blessed people. But what does it mean to really be blessed? In the Old and New New Testament, the words for blessed convey a status of happiness and contentment. But this happiness and contentment as it relates to the text of Scripture isn't circumstantial, but rather it is grown out of an existing relationship. In our text here before us, the psalmist uses the Hebrew word asher, which means bless. But it's much more than that. The root of this Hebrew word is ashar, which means to be straight, to be right. This kind of blessedness that the psalmist is communicating here is not merely circumstantial contentment, but rather a happiness that extends from a straight, from a right relationship with God. And this church is why, as believers, 
who have surrendered our lives to Christ even though we will face terrible situations, trials, and sorrows. John 16, guarantees it for us, saying that in this life you will have many trials and sorrows, but you can take heart for Christ has overcome the world. And so, Christian, this is why even when we face terrible situations at times, we can still be, proclaim we are blessed. Because our blessedness doesn't come from external factors, situations. Those do not determine our blessedness, but what determines, determines our blessedness is a right relationship with God. Is this understanding of blessedness which leads Charles Spurgeon to write, it is not blessed is the king, blessed is the scholar, blessed is the rich, but blessed is the man. This blessedness is attainable by the poor, the forgotten, and the obscure. Blessedness isn't just for the rich. It's not just for those who have been found. It's not just for those who are noticed. It is given to those who are right with God. If our blessedness is limited to happiness achieved by pleasing external circumstances, then we are missing what it means to truly be blessed this morning. It is through this understanding of blessedness that the psalmist writes this work to show us what the life of a man who is right with God, who is blessed, looks like. And by contrast, what the life and the punishment is to those who are not blessed. If you're taking notes this morning, there are three main points that I would like for us to see from this text. First, we will look at the way of the righteous. Second, we will look at the way of the wicked or the way of the ungodly. And finally, we'll ask and answer the most important question from the text, who is righteous? As we look at these three big points, I'll also have subpoints. I know some of you like to plan ahead for this sort of thing, so there will be subpoints here. Uh, so first, let's get started. The way of the righteous. Look down with me again at verse one. It says, "Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers." The first subpoint I want us to see from this text is what the righteous, what the blessed man does not do. What the righteous man does not do. As a part of being straight or right with God, there are certain things that the blessed man does not do. There is a way that he will not walk. There is a path that he will not stand in. There is a seat that he will not sit in. Some commentators, when looking at this text, will view this walking, standing, sitting as a progression of sin. Some scholars don't do this. They just view this as a type of synonymous parallelism that's just communicating one single point. But most scholars would actually say that this is a progression of sin, that this is thinking, behaving, belonging. Sinful disobedience often begins as a thought. Maybe I'll just go out for a walk. Not long after that, if these thoughts are left unchecked and not submitted to the cross of Christ, we will begin behaving sinfully, standing in a path that we should not be standing in. And if that behavior is not confessed and crucified at the cross of Christ, we will be belonging, sitting in sin, living a life that is habitual, 
and sinfulness. One scholar put it this way, the great lesson to be learned from the whole is sin is progressive. One evil propensity or act leads to another. He who acts by bad counsel may soon do evil deeds, and he who abandons himself to do evil things may end his life in total apostasy from God. But this progression does not characterize the blessed man. No, the righteous man and the wicked man are very different in how they think, how they behave, and where they and to whom they belong. Notice also in verse 1 that the wicked do indeed have counsel. I often think the wicked people just do wicked things by their own accord, but oftentimes wicked people are being guided and counseled by wicked people to do wicked things. So the wicked do indeed have counsel, but the righteous man is not to walk in it. So this communicates to me that there is wise counsel this morning, and there is foolish and unrighteous counsel. The righteous man knows how to stay away from the counsel of the wicked. The righteous man knows how to discern what is godly counsel and what is ungodly counsel. And this is where many fail. And at times I am so guilty of this as well. We fail to consider if the counsel we are receiving is godly or ungodly. I believe we've lost the ability, and I'm, I'm trying so hard to grow in this ability as well, to critically think, to have a baseline, a foundation for which we understand all truth, and we filter all the things that we see and hear through that baseline, through that foundation. And of course, for us as believers, that foundation, that baseline is the word of God. When I was a younger Christian, I sadly felt prey to this often. I would read an author, and because they're an author, because they've been published, because they have a position of authority, I would simply trust them at their word without searching the scripture for myself. I even encourage my students to do this on Wednesday nights. Don't take everything I say at face value. Of course, as Paul charged Timothy, as preachers, we are to handle the word of God for it is truth. We are to handle it well, but at times we may slip up. We may say something wrong. And so I encourage students, you know, search the scripture for yourself. Look at God's authoritative word because there it is that you will find life. So my baseline for truth was not coming from God's word, but rather from the word of men. Along with that, I grew up in a church culture where many would come to me and say something along the lines of, God told me to tell you blank. And that's not always bad. I think that there can be some good advice that comes from that, uh, especially if it's followed by, God told me to tell you this, open your Bibles, here it is, right? I even had a girlfriend in middle school who said, God told me that we shouldn't be together anymore, right? Anybody guilty have that? Yeah. Yeah. Some of you have been on the receiving end of it. Some of you have maybe said that. Well, the altar is open. I suppose God didn't feel the need to share that message in my prayer time, but he did with her. <laughs> jokes aside, jokes aside, many today will mishandle the word of truth and lead people astray. Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.3, For the time is coming 
when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, tickling ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. If we are not discerning over what is godly and ungodly counsel, it is a slippery slope to wandering off into false teaching. There's a lot of messages that are out in our culture today in social media and TV and everywhere else that you receive your messages. So many different messages that are pleasing to the flesh that are trying to get you to wander off from the foundational truth of God's word. And we have to be discerning of that. We have to be aware of that. The Satan is a thief. He will try to steal, kill, and destroy us. But if we have a baseline, if we have a foundation of truth to which we anchor ourselves down and to which we cling to, it can help us in combating this tendency. So to combat this, the righteous man's delight is not in the word of men, but firmly placed in the word of God. Subpoint two is this, what the righteous man does. So we looked at what the righteous man does not do. He does not walk, stand, or sit with the sinners. What the righteous man does is this. Look with me at verse 2. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. And this law is not limited to the Mosaic and the Levitical law, but rather this is God's entire word, his word that has been revealed to us, that has been breathed out to us for us to receive and to hold. The righteous man is delighted with God's word. What delights you? What makes you happy? What gets you excited? What gets you out of your bed in the morning? And this is an excellent question, I believe, to ask ourselves to discover what is most important to us. If personal pleasure is the only thing that makes us happy, then we are self-centered. If being with your family or friends delights you, that can be better, but it still falls short because not all the time is your family or your friends your supreme, supreme pleasure or desire because at times they will disappoint you. But for the righteous man, he finds his delight in the law of the Lord, which never fails, which never disappoints. Spurgeon is also helpful here. He says a man, man must have some delight some supreme pleasure. His heart was never meant to be a vacuum. If not filled with the best of things, he will be filled with the unworthy and disappointing. Is God's word one of the best of things, the best of things to you this morning, Christian? After all, it is his word that provides us with great power to combat sin. The psalmist writes in Psalm 119.9, How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wonder from your commandments. And listen to this. I have stored up your word in my heart. It is God's word that fills that void. That I might not sin against you. God's word also provides us with counsel through his word. In the same chapter in verse 24, Psalm 119, the psalmist says, your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. For the righteous man, 
God's word is not something he merely ponders upon Sundays and Wednesdays. It's not something he dusts off and opens up just on these days, but rather he meditates upon it day and night. He doesn't just hear it and forget about it, but he thinks deeply upon it. Much of the teaching today, sadly, has been greatly influenced by Eastern mysticism, which focuses on the idea of emptying the mind so one can let loose and experience true religiosity. And sadly, this way of thinking has crept its way into the church today. The emptying of one's mind presents an open invitation to deception. As my grandmother used to say, idle hands are the devil's playground. This idiom expresses the idea that if our minds, our words, our actions are not occupied with the things of God, we will be more susceptible to fall. But for the righteous man, his mind is not to be emptied, but it is to be filled with God's word. It is to be sought after by the man's heart. It is to be stored up in his heart, as the psalmist said. One of my professors said concerning this verse that immersing oneself in God's word shapes one's mind and then naturally shapes how one's life is lived. It may be worth asking ourselves, if our lives are not lining up to God's will and his ways, is his word a supreme delight in my life? The third point is this, how the righteous man is blessed how the righteous man is blessed. Look with me at verse three. It says this, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither and all he does, he prospers. The righteous man is blessed because he is right with God. He is firmly planted as a tree by the streams of living water. The righteous man has roots which go down deep, and because of that, he is strong and stable. And not only is he strong and stable, but he is yielding, he is bearing much fruit. And this fruit comes naturally because of where the righteous man is planted. The tree is producing much because its roots are going down deep in the life source. This idea is similar to what Jesus spoke of in John 15 to his disciples. Jesus says in the 15th chapter, verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Those whose roots are going down deep will produce much fruit as evidence of a relationship, a right relationship with God, just as the righteous man. But the opposite is true as well. If he is not planted by a life source, then he does not have deep roots. He is not producing anything other than death and dryness. The righteous man does not have these signs because his leaves are green and alive. Dr. Betts, author of 40 Days in the Psalms, devotional, writes this, the continual watering of God's word will sustain the happily blessed person, resulting in a thriving life lived unto God. This is true prosperity. Second, we look at the contrast. So first, we looked at the way of the righteous, and now we will look at the contrast. Second big point for those who are keeping track. 
the way of the wicked, the ungodly. Look with me at verse 4. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. The first subpoint is this, the dangerous place of the ungodly. You can almost feel, and hopefully when we read it, you can almost feel this shift of mood in the text. There is this crescendo building toward the end of the narrative about the righteous one, that all he does, he prospers, yet the wicked are not so. Everything true about the righteous man, stable as a tree, continual life and nourishment, fruitful, alive, and prosperous, is not so regarding the wicked. From outward appearances, it looks like the ungodly and the wicked people in our culture have all the things of the righteous people. Maybe even at times they look like they have more than the righteous. But the word of God tells us it is not so. For the righteous, all his prosperity and life is of eternal value. But for the wicked, prosperity and what seems to advertise itself as life is fleeting. We know this because the psalmist compares their life and their prosperity to chaff. Chaff is the light shell around a kernel of grain which must be stripped away before the kernel can be ground into flour. Chaff is so light that it could be separated by the grain by simply throwing it up into the air and letting the wind drive it off the kernel. This is how unstable, how lacking in substance the wicked are. One scholar says this about chaff and its usefulness in ancient Israel. He doesn't hold back. He says it is intrinsically worthless, dead, unserviceable, without substance, and easily carried away. This is how the psalmist describes wicked people. There is, church family, a huge difference between a tree that is firmly planted by streams of living water and chaff which easily flies away in the wind. There is a great difference between a righteous man and the wicked. The second subpoint is the dangerous future of the ungodly. Look with me at verse 5. It says, Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. Because they are ungodly, because they have no weight, they are going to be found lacking in the day of judgment. In Daniel chapter 5, there is a mysterious message that is written on a wall during the feast thrown by the new king of Babylon, Belshazzar, who succeeded Nebuchadnezzar. Enemy armies are surrounding the Babylonian empire, but rather than preparing to defend and responding to the danger, they are participating in worldly, drunken, and sacrilegious pleasure. Daniel reveals to the king of Daniel 5, 27, that the message God has wrote to you, king, is this. God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. You, Belshazzar, have been weighed in the balances and found wanting, lacking. Belshazzar believes, even as someone who is wicked, that he is safe and secure because of his prosperity, the walls he has built up. But what he doesn't recognize, what wicked people don't recognize, is that God does the weighing. And we have been found severely wanting. This is a strong warning for us from God's word. 
And I believe that the same could be said today of today's cultural Christianity. We often measure our rightness with God through external prosperity, good works, or because we have alliances with those who are part of the family of God. We anchor ourselves down in the fact that, you know, we're not such bad people compared to, you know, Adolf Hitler. I'm a great guy compared to him. We anchor ourselves down in the fact that my family is a Christian. My best friends are Christian. I can just kind of walk behind, walk into heaven on the coattails of their faith. They're rolling out the red carpet for me. I can just walk on in. Or maybe in the fact that we've gone to church every Sunday. We attend Wednesday night meetings because we memorize this verse or that verse. We go to a Christian school. Or because we are right in the heart of the Bible Belt in East Tennessee and God's face will just shine down upon us. Yet this is not the case. Matthew seven twenty one, Jesus says these strong words. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven on that day, the day of judgment, as the psalm speaks to as well, the psalmist speaks to. Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do many mighty works in your name? Lord, did we not go to church every Sunday? We're not our best friends, Christians. Were, were I not influenced daily by a Christian message in my Christian school? Surely you will receive me. And then I would declare to them, Jesus says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus here calls those who place their hope and trust in external things workers of lawlessness. The lawless people are those who have an utter disregard for God's law. For while they perform signs and wonders, their hearts are far from God. Although they do good things, their mind is elsewhere. Their spiritual life has nothing to do with their daily life. They go to church, perhaps fulfill some religious duties, yet sin against God as any other man might with no remorse, no guilt, no confession before the holy God in whom they have offended because they don't know him. But the Lord knows who are his people. Look with me at verse 6. In our psalm, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Finally, our third main point is asking and answering this question. This is the most important question. If you've tuned me out this entire time, that's okay. But I encourage you to listen here and now. Because this is the greatest news you will ever receive. We're going to ask and answer this question. Who is righteous? I'm not sure about you, but when I look at this passage and the characteristics of the righteous, I fall miserably short. If the righteous one is one who never gets distracted by deceitful counsel, one who doesn't stand in sin ever and always, always delights. It is always his supreme pleasure, God's law. Always delights in the word of God with nothing ever taking supremacy of it. Then I don't meet the standard of righteousness. 
And I imagine that I'm not the only one in this room here this morning. But there is great hope, brothers and sisters. Look with me again at verse 1. The psalmist writes, blessed is the man. This is incredibly important. The Hebrew word for man used here is singular. It does not speak to the plurality of mankind, maybe as we would talk about Adam's sin affecting man, all of man. This is speaking about one man. Who is the true and blessed righteous man? And I would submit to you, brothers and sisters, that this blessed man who walks in the counsel of his heavenly Father, who stands in purity by knowing no sin, and sits at the right hand of the Father is none other than Jesus Christ. He is the blessed man. He is the righteous man. He is the standard. And if Christ is the standard, if he is the one, then I in this text don't start as the righteous one. No, I am the wicked. I am the ungodly. I am chaff. You see, righteousness is defined as behavior that is morally justifiable or right. And the Bible's standard of human righteousness is not how you compare to Adolf Hitler. It's not how you compare to so-and-so. But it is how you compare to God's own perfection in every attribute, every attitude, every word, every behavior. Thus, God's law is given in the Bible both describe his own character and constitute the plumb line by which he measures human righteousness, by which he weighs human righteousness. And what I have found is that I am lacking. You see, sin has penetrated the very core of our being. Isaiah writes in Isaiah 64, 6, we have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are a polluted garment, filthy rags. Paul recalls in the book of Psalms, In Romans 3, 10 through 12, he uses the book of Psalms as he's carrying his argument. He writes this, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And what does no one mean there? No one. Because of our love for sin, we have become dead in our transgressions and held captive by a love for sin. See, brothers and sisters, we are in desperate need of some good news. We are in desperate need of the gospel. We are in desperate need of this blessed man, Jesus Christ, by whom we receive the greatest news of all, that Jesus Christ took our sin upon himself and purchased our salvation. Romans 5, 8, and 9 says this, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, while you were still ungodly, while you were still wicked, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved from him, by him, from the wrath of God. And this is through Christ. This is not of your own doing. God didn't wait for you to pull yourself up by your bootstraps, as it were, walk your way halfway, and God says, yep, you met me halfway, now I'm going to save you. No, while you were still sinners, while you were at your farthest point, while you were hostile in mind, while you were an enemy of God, he died for you. 
Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake, he made him Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And what a glorious promise this is that although we are sinners, through the free gift of salvation, Christ freely gives his righteousness to sinners. The blessed man's standard that we can never meet was freely given to you through Christ's death and resurrection. This blessed man is further revealed in Psalm 2, which I highly encourage you to read because these psalms are actually meant to be read together, Psalm 1 and 2. But I want to point out one verse for our attention. Verse 12. This is Psalm 2, verse 12. The psalmist writes, Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Listen to this. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Now there is plurality. How do we become blessed? How do we become positionally righteous? We kiss the Son. We look to the one who is the author and perfecter of our faith, who brings us out of rebellion and makes us sons and daughters of God. You have been bought with a price, transferred from the family of death into the family of life, not by your own works, not by your own doing, but through the free gift of salvation in Jesus. This morning, if you have not kissed the Son, if you have not tasted and seen in the Lord's goodness, if you have not repented of your sin and trusted in Christ, the Savior who has redeemed you, today, would that be the day? If that is you today, I would encourage you as you leave this room and you go out to the left, before you exit, there's a room called Crossroads. There'll be a pastor there who would love to talk with you about this tremendous gift of salvation in Christ. And I'll be here afterwards as well, and I would love to talk with you too. Well, friends, with the time that we have left, there's one more thing I would like to bring our attention to, and that is living out our positional righteousness. There is a tendency, I believe, for some to enjoy the imputed righteousness of Christ while still enjoying a life of sin. One might put it this way. God loves to forgive. I love to sin. Therefore, our relationship is perfect. I grew up in church circles that preach this way. Enjoy the graces of God, for they are bountiful, and ask for forgiveness along the way. Sin was more of a whoopsie than a offense to a holy God. But this is not what Scripture calls us to. Paul writes in Colossians 3, 1, if then you have been raised with Christ, this is the prerequisite, have you trusted in Christ? Now then, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. In other words, if we are those who have received the blessing of God in light of his salvific work, we must strive to pursue righteousness, not as a means of earning or keeping our salvation, but in response to the incredible love for which God has shown us in Christ Jesus. 
Although we are not this blessed man in Psalm 1, the qualities of the blessed man in Psalm 1 must also become true of us because we have become one with him. And if it is not true of us, God will know and his word reveals, as his word reveals to us. Thinking of the imagery in Romans chapter 6 when Paul says that through baptism, through faith in Christ, we have been buried with him and raised to walk in newness of life. We have been united with him. Not to live as we've always lived, as our former ignorance, but live in honor of the one who has saved us. For many years, I proclaimed to be a follower of Christ while living in habitual sin. Christianity was more of a label to me. I fit in with the crowds better if I called myself a Christian. I went to church every Sunday and Wednesday. My parents were Christians. My best friends were Christians. I served in a homeless ministry and more. And I thought, well, I'm good. I'm doing all the right external things. And so because of that, I believed I was blessed. It wasn't until later that my youth pastor confronted me in my sin and shared this verse with me. And we read verse 8 of this earlier, but 1 John 1, 6, just two verses before that. It says that if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. I was so foolish to think that God doesn't know who are his. I was so foolish to think that I could just slip one by God. I mean, we fool people all the time. We're great at it. We're great at making these faces, living a two-faced life to where we can, you know, we can talk the talk, we can walk the walk without ever knowing the one who has given us life. If this is you this morning, would you today truly repent and trust in the God who has made you righteous and set you aside to do good works and not return to your former ignorance, but to live for holiness. Dear Christians who are in the room, you as well have been set apart as vessels for honorable use, set apart as holy, to be useful to your master, to do every good work. May we, by God's power, go forth to point others to the blessed man who has brought us out from the pit and into marvelous light. Let's pray. Father God, we are so thankful for the salvation that is freely offered in your son, Jesus Christ. God, how foolish we are to believe that you don't know who are your people. God, to be known as a child of God is a privilege. It's not something we begin as, but as your words reveals to us, we are born as enemies, those who are hostile in mind. But God, even then, even still, you sent your son, Jesus, so that if we repent of our sin and declare Christ as Lord of our life, we could have life. Father, by your spirit, if there's anyone in this room who needs to do that this morning, would today be the day of salvation? And Father, for my Christian brothers and sisters who are in the room, thank you for reminding us of your word and our call to live for holiness, for you have set us aside to do so. May we endeavor to point people 
to the blessed man, our godly representative, the one who has imputed his righteousness to us so that we can live positionally righteous. Lord, we are so thankful for this time. Lord, I just pray a blessing over this time that we have left. May everything that we say and do bring honor and glory to your name. For us in your son's precious and holy name we pray. Amen.